Hi, this is Charlie Peck from the Thriving Educator Podcast. We have Dr. Brian Perlman on today. Oh my goodness. What a great time. Brian, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Hey, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, tell everybody why it's so exciting for you, especially right now in this moment. Well, especially because Charlie, you're the first person to talk to me since my third book came out. It just <laughs> came out this weekend. It's so new that I don't even have my own real copy. This is the not for resale version. Oh this dropped this week, like yesterday or this weekend, whatever. First time talking about it. Well, and that's exciting because we are truly dropping this tomorrow. And today is, you know, we're in December already. So this is exciting. And Listen, I know you have a lot of followers already who are really anticipating this. Tell everyone where the book, like, why are you, why did you write this one? Yeah, so that's an awesome question, a really good one. My first two books really had a main focus for educators. And when I say educator, really, I mean anyone who cares about kids, works for kids, helps them to succeed in, in life and in school. So that's been my focus. This book is probably a 50-50 that there's as much value for parents, guardians, people in the community, as much value for them as there is for educators and sort of even an underlying uh, message of bringing them together instead of, you know, we hear so much lately about conflict between the schools and parents and the community. And this is saying, you know, our jobs aren't that, aren't really that different. Right. We can come together with the goal of helping kids, you know, reach their highest potential, being mentally healthy, physically healthy, uh, reach their dreams and such. So this is different in the fact that it really is for anybody where the other ones people bought. it. I can't wait to read your book. And I'm like, I don't know how much it's a lot of stories about classroom and schools, but this has a lot of things that would benefit anybody. Well, that is so huge. I mean, and you've got a tremendous background that I can relate to and, and many people in our world can relate to. So we're, we're going to dive into that. But if I'm reading this book, because I'm excited, I can't wait to get it. If I'm reading this book and I'm an educator and a parent, what's it going to do for me? And it's funny. You really are good, Charlie, because <laughs> it's actually one of the chapters, one of the portions is really I'm an educator and a parent. So it's, it's like amplifying that. So um, it, it's really interesting. I think whether you're an educator parent or an educator who's also a parent, I think I said that right. Um, I think in the past, there's always been this idea that we're kind of silos and maybe even add another silo of people in the mental health world. So they're like three very distinctly different things when in reality, it's more like a Venn diagram. There's so much overlap, you know, by being a parent because you put it like this, if you're just a parent, just a parent, right? You're, you're your kid's first teacher, probably the most important teacher they're, they're ever going to have. So really embracing the value that parents bring to the table, the expertise and pedagogy and philosophy that the teachers do. And if you actually wear both of those hats, share that with everybody, help everyone to see, make that connection. And again, I feel like we are at our best when we're laser focused on what is in the best interest of the kid or the teen. I joke sometimes when people start storytelling about, you know, when I was a kid, schools used to paddle. When I was a kid, we used to do that and we didn't do that. And I'll sometimes joke, it's like, I like a good story. I'm gonna go get some hot cocoa and some cookies and 
I want to hear a great story. That's awesome. And I really want to learn about that. But like the reality of today and what we're dealing with, um, the way we've always done it may not be the best way or the only way to help kids to reach their potential. Well, clearly, because so many people are still struggling and they're still using the same tools that they were using. And think about it like this, which I know, you know, we got to give people a little background if they don't know you, which I'd be shocked if our listeners don't know who you are. I'm shocked. But we're teaching, we're, we've taught SEL for 30 years, correct? And there's tons of evidence for it. It is, it's great stuff, but we still have a youth mental health crisis. And so we've talked about um, giving kids resiliency and giving them the tools, but why haven't we been equipping the adults? And so I think that's what the work that you're doing is so very powerful. Now your background is, I know you've been a principal, but I know you became a mental health therapist. So can you talk about why the heck you did that? And what is the like a defining moment for you? Tell us about that. Maybe I did things wrong. Maybe I didn't follow the map because so many people I encounter say, yeah, I was the counselor first, or I was a therapist first, and through kids or through schools, and then went through the admin route where I did it the opposite. I guess I just like to do things differently. Um, always, always been an educator. You know, my my family, a family of educators. It's really, really important to us. Um, I did my career, had a great time, was a principal for a long time, really enjoyed it. But my next step would have been central office. A superintendent, things like that. And that really did not seem very desirable to me. No offense to any superintendents who are out there, central office folks. I just felt like I'd be too far away from the product. So what happened is my wife, whose office is two behind me, she founded our practice here. And I came here to help expand the practice because the need was so great. And in doing so, I went back to school to learn more about like, what is this business that we have? Um, and loved it so much and realized I probably was uh, practicing without a license all those years as a teacher and principal because, you know, principal particularly, nobody really came to the office because of good stuff, right? (laughs) A lot of times the behaviors that we saw were really rooted in in an emotion, uh, rooted in a need that wasn't met or behavior was communicating something. So um, it really afforded me also a lot more time because a principal sometimes we felt like you know you're the counter guy at a new york city deli where it's like okay customer 17 what do you have what did you do blah 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 and process and it was like you never had enough time to do what you needed to do in this setting certainly you know i have an hour at a time to work with people and really get more more deep into that build the trust and provide tools and things of that sort so that's kind of why i went from uh you know being an educator uh, to getting into mental health and uh, combining those two to take the show on the road. COVID kind of slowed that down a little bit, but I was traveling every week somewhere. And, you know, back to an earlier thing where you were talking about, you know, for kids, but also helping the adults to help the kids. So often that's the strategy where you're saying, oh, here's some great things for kids about self-care, but wink, wink, maybe you should try that too. Or conversely, here's something geared to the adults. Oh my gosh, that could actually work for our kids too. So really just trying to keep the focus on, you know, our kids, but also the adults who are, who are there to help our kids to achieve uh, amazing things. So that's how I got here today. That's huge. And it's important that people get that because you are now using that lens as a therapist 
to improve education and what's going on there. So how are you bridging that gap? Like, what are you actually bringing into the educators and the, the leaders that, you know, you work with or speak to? A lot of it, you know, obviously there's ways that, that we're communicating with people through social media, through emails, through phone calls, through books and articles and all of that stuff. But when I hit the road and I go to different groups, whether it's, you know, school social workers, whether it's classroom teachers, superintendents, principals, I did a, a conference in New York a couple of weeks ago for the New York State School Psychologists. So sometimes the, you know, you tweak things just a little bit um, towards the audience, but really you're, you're the exception to the rule. I'm the exception to the rule. There really aren't that many people that can walk the line and have the teaching background and have the mental health piece. So sometimes it really is just translating this or breaking it down or showing how everything is so interconnected. And again, I feel like our field 20, 30 years ago, hopefully not sooner than that, um, we're really silos. And no, that sounds like la, la, la. That sounds like mental health and emotion stuff. La, 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 send them to the counselor. La, 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 la. I don't want to talk about that. But we know that that's just not the case anymore. I was at another training and someone raised their hand. I don't know why I'm here. What's with all this mental health mumbo jumbo? And at first I didn't know what mumbo jumbo meant. I was really interested. But I said, well, you know, what do you mean? He goes, well, that's the job for the counselors. I'm like, you have 2000 students in your school and you have like four counselors. You would need, really need to quadruple that at least to scratch the surface of the kind of needs that we have. Uh, data is telling us that before the pandemic, two thirds of the kids out there have had at least one traumatic experience. And there's some with way more than that, that there's another data point from 13 years ago that said that half of adolescents walking into the school would qualify for a mental health diagnosis. And that was 13 years ago. Yeah. That has not gone down. The amplifying that with what we've been through the past few years you're literally talking about probably everybody in the building has something going on, be it anxiety, depression, trauma, certainly a high level of stress. So this is really, really important stuff. And still I get calls, hey, Mr. Mental Health Guy, or hey, Trauma Guy, or whatever. I guess I go by a lot of different names. <laughs> it's like, Can you come to our school? You know, our board's telling us we've got to do something in the social emotional world, or we need to do some mental health, or our teachers haven't had, you know, any training in. And the first thing is my jaw drops, like I'm really still surprised. But it's like, that's why probably people you know, like us are as busy as we are, because we are really playing catch up to all those things that were the counselor's job or the social worker's job that now it's like it's level one triage is all of us. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, it's so true. And now like you can just see that. So, okay, let's pretend for a second, you're not a counselor, you're not in the work you're doing now and you go back to be a principal. All right. What would you equip staff with, or what would you do differently with the lens you now have? Yeah, I will tell you, I, last time I was a principal, I believe was nine years ago. Um, and the world has changed a lot in the last nine years. Uh, I'll start by saying there's so much I didn't know that I didn't know, which is a really hard place to be because I thought I knew a lot. I didn't know really much of anything. I think that it would be the type of thing where coming into a school I would say we really need to make an emphasis on self-care for all of us, that we really need to look at things 
that promote uh, improved mental health, that cause less stress for the adults, for the kids, instead of putting an emphasis on, you know, okay, we suspend or we've got this and that, it's more like looking for alternatives, looking for ways to be proactive because, I mean, that's a big part of it. You know, you have kids that have high anxiety or have depression or have something else going on, they end up getting in trouble, they end up getting sent home in some ways to the environment of, of where this, this is happening. Or then they come back and their anxiety sky high because of thinking about the what ifs. You know, what if is a good sign of anxiety? What if this, what if that? What if people laugh at me? What if they bring this up? And it just becomes a perpetual problem, a bigger problem. So I would really make that a focus of really tying this information in, breaking it down to small pieces. The last thing any of our teachers or any of our staff need is more stuff to do. I would, if I had the um, autonomy and I had the ability, I would be looking at more ways to cut things down, remove things from the, the teacher's plates and really put an emphasis in this because the better we are, the better that we're feeling, the better our mental health is and our kids are, the better the achievement's going to be for all of us, right? It's kind of the idea. My second book was Maslow Before Bloom, and it really was, it's like, oh, we've got to get that Maslow stuff done first, and then we can get to those higher level of learning and achievement and things. But if not, that foundation, it's just, it's really fragile. So I think that that would be the, the biggest thing that really we would have a major focus on that. Um, I probably would also cut back on the number of meetings that we've done. I was going to ask you, what's the number one thing you would cut back on? If you could have a choice, would it be meetings? We don't have the luxury of, we can't waste a minute. Teachers need more and more time. They need to be meeting together. They need to be analyzing data. They need to be, you know, judging the effectiveness of, of their interventions that they're using. And, you know, that's the one, that's the most uh, prized possession. The most important thing we have is our time and our energy. And it's not a limitless thing that freeing teachers up to be able to to do these sorts of things and be prepared because the idea of, you know, take, take, take more time away, more on the plate. It's why like half of our field leaves within the first three to five years. And it's not even that now. I mean, there are veteran educators leaving so quickly out of this field. And I see people every day, I get notes, Hey, I'm now running this, or I'm now doing this. I left the field. Phew. And that's a travesty because the problem is it's, it's not typically, your poor performing or your low empathy people that leave. It's just people like, I just can't do this for 30 years at this pace anymore, you know, and, and, and really, you know, trying to, to change that, that it really doesn't need to be like fraternity or sorority hazing. And, you know, the strong will survive more effect of, you know, let's, let's just really do what's most important, really focus and then have that time for reflection. And so often, you know, people will complain and tell me, well, everyone preaches self-care. When are we supposed to do that? You know, they treat, they, they're focusing on how, things that are good for our mental health. And they give us, you know, two more curriculum things to rewrite by the end of the school year. So it's like I'm saying one thing and then doing something else. So I think cutting back on, on meetings, really focusing on what's most important, and then... Um, yeah, let's just get us to a point where we're caught up in some way, shape, or form and can take a breath before doing too much else. Yeah, that's a good point. The whole feeling of caught up, it does give us a huge sense of relief in any area of your life. Now, let's think about that a little bit. 
So the whole self-care piece in schools, if you're a principal, how do you encourage the whole self-care when everyone is so busy without making them feel like that means avoidance and not having to do work? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know that what's around and, that? I hear that a lot. Part of it too is doing a good job, you know, walking the walk, not just talking the talk. You know, I know I, I preach this a lot when I was a principal and I was in my building seven days a week. And I was usually the first one and last one. And I guess somewhere ingrained in my head, that's just what you need to do. And the light bulb came on at some point where it's like the most successful people I know are efficient and they have balance and they really do a deep dive into what's on their plate and say, I need to focus my energies on the things that only Brian can do and then try to find ways and and teachers can do the same thing and looking for ways to collaborate, looking for ways that we don't always have to recreate the wheel every time. In fact, you know, if you spend five or six hours preparing for a one hour uh, activity or lesson, that's bad economics. That's probably a bad use of time. So a lot of it, I think, is is trying to model it, but also trying to free the teachers up with stuff that we've always done, but just it takes a lot of time that there's not really much benefit from. One school district I worked at, we actually took this path because of a budget cuts. We literally put everything that we do as a district, everything, every assessment, every tool, on a whiteboard and then we're like what was the reason we have it how effective is it what does it cost us how much time blah 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 we cut like half the stuff that we're asking teachers to do there was one thing i know i got a little bit of pushback they're like no but the kids really like it you know when they're done they get a cute little certificate i'm like but the data shows that it's a waste of time a waste of money and it really isn't effective but they get a little thing i'll buy everyone a sticker i'll buy a little Let me do that. I'm not going to free up more time. So it's really just looking at, you know, what it is that we're doing and how we're spending our time and then really trying to do everything we can to take things off of the teacher's plate, the educator's plate, and and really being protective of we can't do something new until as an administrator, one of my former bosses, Dave Buck, a great guy said that it's the rule of three really that you implement something year one it's probably not going to be good year two we might be figuring out year three with that can see and then evaluate the success but so often it's year one and now here's this and here's that and here's this it's like no we're committing three years to this we're not adding anything unless the state or federal mandates that we do it we're just going to make a commitment to being really good at that one new thing and, and, and I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I think people really appreciate that. Yeah. And I think like your book probably has a bunch of ways where you're looping in the parents to have more of a partnership to help that. Like there's so much burden on either just the parents or the teachers, and then everyone's blaming each other for all the pitfalls. So how do you suggest we partner with our parents better to, to just gain some momentum and, and make these improvements? I think that the first step is to really have an open conversation, open forum. So it's it's really not an us first them. I know certain staff lounges you go into and you hear that it's an us first them or people at the grocery store, at the pickup line, you can hear that it's an us first them sometimes. It's unfortunate, yeah. but it's that way. And really, you know, trying to make sure that we're comfortable with one another, that we're partners in this very important endeavor that we have 
um, and that we really do work together. There's something, you know, we used to do is try everything we could to get a parent to either come, come in, tune in, whatever it was. And sometimes, you know, some of my staff would be frustrated. I'm like, you have to understand some of these parents were disenfranchised as students and didn't regularly come to school when they were mandated by law. Why in the world would they be coming now if this wasn't, if this maybe was a traumatic experience for them? So trying to find very benign ways to get people in to send the sort of did you know and, and different kinds of things. The other piece, which um, is a delicate and very controversial thing, I'd be really mindful of homework. You know, I, I sometimes it's a non-starter when I get up on my soapbox, but you know, I, I have a kid I see right now that's he's in third grade that spends four hours a night on homework. That's mm -hmm. seven and a half hours at school, four hours at that. We wouldn't want that for for the adults. We'd tell them, hey, let's balance that. Most of the weekends playing catch up. And to me, it's like I, I don't agree with that. You know, I think you know, homework is a good practice. You know, homework is, you know, a good thing. It shouldn't be graded. You know, it's just practice. If I want to go play baseball and I want to get better, I probably have to hit the batting cages a little bit. But it doesn't mean that that's mandated. The same thing for everyone all the time. And, and going back to it, especially, you know, parents get frustrated. They're like, my kids have soccer, they have violin, or they have, you know, tutoring. And then I got to come home and I got to feed them and I got to get them a shower. And then we're up till midnight doing homework. And, you know, the kid's nine, right? Or 12. It's just, you know, with knowing what we know about, you know, um, sleep, about nutrition, about getting fresh air and sunlight. If you're coming home to four hours of homework, there's not a lot of time for any of that stuff. Mm -mm. And, and we just have so much evidence now, don't we? We know, we know much more about that stuff. And, and I could quote it. I'll sometimes someone will get me off on a tangent and I'll bring it up and you could just see half the room cringe who are like, no, but I already have those worksheets printed for the next six months. And you're like, oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. We don't, you know, the other thing is you have a kid, you know, from an equity standpoint who lives somewhere that they can't go get a piece of poster board or they don't have reliable internet versus the kid at home where it comes in and the teacher's like, wow, this kind of looks just like your mom's handwriting. So you have the parent who's doing the homework for the kid and getting an A maybe, and the kid who doesn't have access, you know, doesn't have good internet, uh, doesn't even have a dedicated place to get their work done, and they're getting an F or a zero, and that's problematic. So, yeah, maybe that's another day's discussion for us, Charlie, to discuss. Maybe we'll write a book together about how bad, you know, the way of homework has been in the past and so forth and coming up with a new approach. But maybe we'll do that another day. We definitely need to. We definitely need to. All right. So there's a couple of things I would love to go over with you before we go. So the fir very first thing is, I mean, your tagline, Maslow Before Bloom, is a people quote you all the time that I know in this industry. So can you just let people know, I mean, it seems pretty clear, but what's like one lasting thing you want people to know about the whole Maslow Before Bloom and how it's going to help our kids? So probably the most important thing is it's not saying Maslow and no bloom. It's both, right? We are in the academic and education field. It is our job to help you know, students to grow and learn and do that. So that is really, really important. But just understanding things like, you know, if a kid's tired, let them get a nap. If someone's hungry, let's feed them. If someone needs a hug, let's just give them a hug, right? And I, I say all the time, this doesn't require, you know, a fundraiser or a bond issue or board approval. 
it seems so easy. Charlie, it's that easy. It really is that we have to know. We have to get to know our students. You know, a tip that I give people is in the morning, put your rear end in the door jam and fist bump, high five kids, even kids you don't know, and just be that person. Because for some of our kids, that might be enough that it's worth me coming to the school thing or someone who's really questioning life and, and their success. And if anyone cares and do I exist, that could be the difference maker. So really just understanding it's not a psychological mumbo jumbo thing. It's not a mental health thing. It's a good for kids thing. And it really is. And it's so critically important that we remember that. And I know it's not hard to remember that like in July, but I tell you between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's hard to remember that between high stakes testing and the end of the school year, when sort of our uh, bandwidth and our batteries are really down, that's the time we need to remind ourselves on what an important role that we have. It literally is the most important job in the world and what a profound impact we can have on the next generation of, of everybody, the next generation of people in our world. It's such, a, such an awesome responsibility. It is an awesome responsibility. And if we had every person in the building doing those simple things that you just mentioned, we had a teacher, he passed away. I cannot believe we lost him, but um, his name is Tom McMahon. And he used to go through the hallway and look kids in the eye and say hello to them, even if he didn't know them. And he said, because that kid may not have any person looking them in the eye and seeing them that day or ever. So yeah, that's, it's really impactful. Okay. So also before we go, can you tell us about the distinguished school title and how schools can earn that and in, in your, um, your nonprofit? So with our nonprofit, again, a little thing called COVID has kind of messed up our plans a little bit. Uh, we were working with schools, our board would select anywhere between one and three schools a year where we would come out uh, do a real deep dive, a needs assessment, and then really provide the tools and training to help them to achieve whatever the goals were. It could be uh, suspension alternatives. It could be helping students with trauma. It could be educating parents and family or accessing mental health. So we had done that, and it's a one-year commitment. And for some of our schools, it's been a four-year commitment because COVID's kind of slowed things down. We work with uh, two schools in Alaska, we've worked with a school in Memphis and a school in Delaware. Our board is meeting after the first of the year to determine how we're gonna redo this or how we're gonna move forward. And if there is a push in the future of trying to train the trainers to really amplify the efforts of what we're doing, because the majority of the behind the scenes, it's, it's our board, the majority of the implementation is, is yours truly. And there's only so much of one person to go around. It's kind of like we really wanted to get very good at this, know exactly what it is that we're doing, sort of what the goals and outcomes would be. And I think we're at a point there and I'm looking forward to seeing the direction. There may be a commitment uh, or focus point of more of the Midwest since my, I'm right here in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, getting from St. Louis to most points in the Midwest is awesome. Uh, getting from St. Louis to Anchorage is a little bit of an expedition. It's beautiful there. It's so nice, but really just trying to find a way that we can maximize our impact. Um, and through all the initiatives, our therapy practice, my own professional development, uh, the nonprofit, everything that we do, the emphasis was always to try to positively impact 100,000 educators and through that at least a million kids and we have to raise the bar now because we've 
certainly achieved and gone past that goal, just really feeling how much, how important it is for us to spread our reach so that we can impact as many people in a positive way as possible. And so we're, we feel great about that. We're tired, there's a lot going on, but most of us sleep uh, really good at night knowing that it's such important work that we're doing. Wow, it is incredible work, especially nowadays. Oh my goodness. Okay, so if anyone is listening to this and is in, excited to do that, you just go to dsmhw.org, correct, yeah. Ryan? Yes. They okay, can and check that out. Yeah, they can always email, they can reach out through that. And even if it turns out that the board selects other schools, there are other resources and other things that we can do to help support them. We try so very hard to not say no, to do what we can to help. So um, if it's us, fantastic. If it isn't, we can find other resources and help them in some way, shape or form to help their kids. That is fantastic. Check it out, everybody. And also you have a Facebook group. And if you guys just search Maslow Before Bloom, you'll definitely find Brian on Twitter, Facebook. And there's a free webinar for the book release and a Q&A. So do you wanna, I did put the link here in the um, show notes, it is there. So if anyone would like to find out about that, go there and check out that link. Yeah. Yeah, very exciting. That's Thursday, six o'clock central time. It's a book discussion, Q&A and kind of anything and everything. It's open to anyone who cares about kids, works with kids. And uh, we did used to do a lot more of these. We're hoping to get back into doing more. It's just a way of, again, making a connection with someone. If there's questions or if there's resources needed, we're happy to do it. As you mentioned, our Maslow Before Bloom Facebook group only almost has 30,000 members all over the world. Again, not liking to recreate the wheel. Let's kind of uh, crowdsource a solution. And if it's something that someone's struggling with in Missouri, Montana, Massachusetts, it's probably something that others have dealt with in other states, other countries. So just not feeling like you're alone in a room with 25 students and four walls or whatever it is that you see, there's a whole community of people out here eager to help and support one another. And you know what, it does take a village. It totally does. It really does. And I know we could talk for about three more hours about all of this right now, but I do want to honor your time. So thank you so very much for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, I really, really appreciate it. We have to do this again sometime soon. We definitely will. Let's look into the new year because there's a lot of information to share, isn't there? There is. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. You can go to thrivingeducator.org. There is a school mental health audit there that you can download and I, if you do nothing else besides check out Dr. Perlman's new book, please go check that out. And by the way, your website is Dr. Per, uh, Dr. Brian Perlman.com, correct? Uh, I think we have that, but better. Oh, so tell me. Mostvaluablepd.com would be the better one. Mostvaluablepd as in professionaldevelopment.com. I got to go make sure I have drbrianperlman.com. I sure hope so, or someone's going to be stealing my traffic. You know what? No, I thought you did, but I do remember seeing the most valuable pd.com. And I just want people to know where to go find you because I know they're going to be eager to. So I think we've got that covered. Most valuable pd.com. Of course, it's on the show notes too. You guys can go check that out. You're pretty easy to find though. You're all, all around. Social right media. Here I am. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, hold up your book real quick. I don't know that we did that. There it is. Okay.
That's going to be awesome. I cannot wait to dive into that. All right. Thank you all so much for being here. And again, thank you, Dr. Perlman. I appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. All right. Let me stop the recording there.